Love might be blind, but please sign your marriage contract with your eyes wide open. Hi, I'm Katie, a newly qualified attorney navigating the T's and C's of life living in Cape Town, South Africa. Join me every second week where I chat about various aspects of the law that you thought you didn't need to know, but now you do. Welcome to Flawed. So, last time we spoke about engagement law in South Africa and marriage out of community of property without the accrual system. This week, I'll be discussing marriage out of community of property with the inclusion of the accrual system and marriage in community of property, the default marriage regime in South Africa. Let's speak about the more complex marriage contract, marriage out of community of property subject to the accrual system. What is this, you may ask? Well, I'll tell you. Basically, you share what you accumulate during the course of your marriage. So, from the date you get married, the whole vibe is, what's mine is ours. To begin, each spouse will need to determine the net value of their respective estates before entering into the marriage. Your net estate is your assets less your liabilities. Your net estate is then expressly recorded in your antinuptial contract as your commencement value, i.e. that which you had in your estate prior to the commencement of the marriage. Your commencement value is ring-fenced and is yours forevermore. So it's really important that this amount is verified by supporting documentation and agreed by the parties, as it can be quite a mission to figure this out when the marriage ends. Often when the party's assets are negligible, i.e. there isn't a whole lot going around, they decide that the commencement value should be zero. This happens a lot with young couples who haven't had the opportunity to build up their estates. Okay, so you've recorded your commencement value, you've entered into the contract, you've gotten married, and now you want to get divorced. What happens? So, with this regime, whatever is accumulated during the course of the marriage accrues to each spouse's respective estate, but the other spouse is entitled to 50% of whatever the gain is. When the marriage ends, each party's estate is again determined, i.e. remember the net value, but instead this is the net value at the end of your marriage. Because the parties are each entitled to 50% of the gain, we need to figure out what the full gain is. You do this by taking your commencement value, i.e. that number recorded in your antinuptial contract, and timesing it by the consumer price index. This allows it to be relevant to inflation. So you've done your little commencement value calculation, and that is now called the present value. In order to determine what the party's gain is, you take the current net value of the party's estates at the date of divorce and you deduct the present value. The final calculation is that each party's growth is added together and divided by two. The party whose estate grew more during the course of the marriage will then have to pay the spouse whose estate grew less. I get that that could be a little bit confusing. 
So let's do a basic example. A's commandment value is 100 Rand and B's commandment value is 200 Rand. These amounts are ring fenced and remain the party's property forevermore. A's estate grows from 100 Rand to 200 Rand, meaning that there's an accrual of 100 Rand, while B's estate grows from 200 Rand to 1000 Rand, meaning that there's an accrual of 800 Rand. Remember, you do that little CPI calculation as well. To work out what each party gets at the end of the marriage, you add up the accrued amounts, i.e. 800 plus 100, and the gain will be 900 Rand. So in this case, each party walks away with 450 Rand plus their initial commencement value. A will walk away with 450 Rand plus 100 and B will walk away with 450 Rand plus 200. Of course, we know in law and life, things are never that simple. But the example I've given you is just the basic principle from which to work from. We're not done yet. Remember, I told you that this contract can be a little bit more complicated. You see, when you get married out of community of property subject to the accrual system, you don't only have to exclude your commencement value, you can also exclude certain assets. For instance, if you're one of the unicorns who were able to purchase property in your early 20s, you can decide. You can either exclude the property itself as an item in your anti-nuptial contract, or you can exclude it as a sum of money, i.e. the market value. Different legal advisors have different school of thoughts. Some like to exclude each and every single item, while others like to globalize the amount and exclude that as a value. There are certain assets which are excluded by virtue of law. So, those assets which you expressly exclude, like I explained above, inheritances, legacies, trusts or donations from a third party, donations between spouses, and any awards for damages, like by the Road Accident Fund. Where do the excluded assets come into the accrual calculation, you might ask? Well, when you are determining your net estate at the end of the marriage, you'll take your assets, less your liabilities, and you'll deduct any of the excluded assets at this point. And then from there, you'll deduct your commencement value that has been CPI'd. And voila, you have your accrual. So why do accrual? Well, the spouses share the increase in their assets that have been accumulated during the course of the marriage, and the economically weaker spouse gets to benefit. You also don't share the assets you had before the marriage, as they're excluded, so this appeals to people who have lots of assets at the time that they get married. Another pro is that during the marriage, each spouse's estate remains theirs, and they're allowed to operate as such, and no joint estate exists. This means that you don't share any debts. You can, however, have a share in the gain at the end of the marriage. Why not do A and C with accrual? Well, the spouse who has more has to share it. Sorry for you. You'll also need to sign a contract, i.e. you have to do some admin, and you'll need to determine your commencement value which can always be disputed at the end. 
the calculation can also be quite complex, especially if there are a few exclusions. Personally, I believe that this is the most modern and equitable system. Often decisions are made for the joint benefit of the family, like one spouse stays at home. There's no way to monetize this contribution and add it to the joint estate. So I believe that by having a cruel, it goes a long way to acknowledge the function that certain contributions, which may not be monetary, add to the overall growth of the party's estates and the marriage as a whole. Just giving you my two cents. Now we head on over to the final marriage regime, marriage in community of property. In South Africa, this is what you call the default regime, i.e. you literally have to do nothing. I mean, you have to get married, that is something, but you don't have to sign a contract and no documents need to be discussed. What happens is as soon as you get married, a joint estate is created. This means that each party's respective estates become one. Instead of each party having ownership of their own estate, they become the owner of half of the joint estate. This is irrespective of their contribution to it. Assets belonging to the spouse prior to the marriage fall into the joint estate, as well as those accumulated during the course of the marriage. But, like always, there are exceptions. Where one party has received a gift, an inheritance, or a donation, and so long as it's been expressly excluded, like in a will or deed of donation, it will not form part of the joint estate. One major sticking point with this regime is that spouses, when married in community of property, become jointly liable for each other's liabilities. This includes those liabilities incurred prior to the marriage. This can be a real disaster if your spouse racks up a huge amount of credit card debt before you get married and then after the marriage the creditors come knocking on your door. They can look to you for payment if you're married in community of property. Additionally, should your spouse become insolvent, a court can order against you for payment. It's kind of like upon marriage, what's mine was never actually mine and it's ours and will remain ours until death or divorce us part. You see, if this regime isn't well thought out, there can be some dire consequences. Because it's a joint estate, the parties, in lots of instances, have to act jointly and need consent from one another in order to do certain transactions. For instance, you need to have consent from your spouse when you're selling property or purchasing property, when you're entering into a credit agreement or when you're signing surety. You don't need consent when you're trading on the stock exchange or you're starting a company or a trust, or if you're performing ordinary acts in the course of your business. What happens if you don't get consent? Well, South African law generally sides with a third party if they did not know or could reasonably not have known that the parties were married in community of property. This means that the contract will be valid. This means that the spouse that didn't have any idea about the contract or the contents of it will then be held to it. In this regard, sometimes fairness does prevail at the end of the marriage, as the innocent spouse can sometimes claim for a readjustment in their favour 
when it's found that a party entered into a contract without consent. On that note, what happens when a marriage in community of property ends? Well, the joint estate will be calculated by adding together all the assets and deducting all the liabilities. Then, whatever is remained is divided equally between the parties. Easy as that. So, why choose in community of property? Well, no contract needs to be concluded and there's no admin that needs to be attended to. It also protects the financially weaker spouse and it tends to promote equality between the spouses. Why not choose this regime? Well, as I said, you'd be liable for your spouse's debts and could even have some consequences upon their insolvency. There also needs to be consent, which can be a barrier to making decisions. And if one party is irresponsible, then the other party suffers. I generally don't recommend this regime, as economically you're joined to the hip with your partner until death or divorce. And that sounds absolutely frightening. Okay, so we finished the marriage regimes and I just want to discuss one more concept with you. I'm nearly done. I promise. Introducing what may be your lifesaver, the post-nuptial contract. So you know how I keep harping on about how you should be signing your anti-nuptial contract before you get married? Well, you might be wondering what to do if you didn't, aka oops. Well, as I mentioned, it's a mission, but it is possible to rectify via something called a post-nuptial contract. There are a few hurdles that you need to get through. For instance, you need to show sound reasons for the change. You can't sort of be like, well, we feel like it. You also need to give notice to your creditors, as well as to the deeds office, which can take between three and four months. And you need to show the court that no third party will be prejudiced by the change. This is done by way of formal application to the High Court, and both spouses need to be parties to the proceedings. It can take some time. High Court applications are also costly, as papers need to be drafted and an advocate will need to be briefed. So, what's the moral of the story? Make an informed decision and sign your marriage contract before you get married. Okay, I'm done. Next time on Flawed. So a lot of people have said to me that they don't want to get married, but they want to know what their rights are. So next time on Flawed, I'll be discussing what your rights are as a partner when you decide not to get legally married. Thanks for listening to Flawed. Don't forget to follow us on social media and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Leave a review, follow us on Insta and DM me all your legal cues. And who knows, maybe it'll appear on an episode. Please note that this podcast doesn't constitute legal advice. 
and should you have a legal issue and require assistance, you would need to approach a legal practitioner who can help you with a specific area of law.